Welcome to The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, the fifth season of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. I am Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, and I'm a writer and neighbor. And we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This season, we're tackling everybody's favorite kids series, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. So join us as we return to childhood and rediscover what's special about this series as we keep our eye out for themes of dominant theology. Hey everybody, welcome to, I don't know what episode this is. 11. Episode 11. That's what I was just looking at. Okay. Episode 11 of the Prophetic Imagination Station season on The Lion, the Witch, and the Evangelicals, where we're deep diving why do evangelicals in the United States just love C.S. Lewis so much and the Chronicles of Narnia. And uh, yeah, just sort of taking a, a, a look at these books. So today we're talking about The Magician's Nephew, and uh, I'm very, very excited about today's guest, which comes across in this conversation, I think, a bit, uh, which I want to talk about. But our guest is Tori Douglas. Yay! Yeah. What did you think when you listened over to this uh, this little chat, Crispin? It was really great. It was so good to like think through how, yeah, how do we approach this? And I we've been touching on this all along, but I think that Tori does a really great job of talking through her process of like, do I want my kids to read this? Is it worth it? Like, what do I do? Um, I just really appreciated her perspective. Yeah. So a few things I want to say. One is that... Tori is amazing, and so she's really good at um, educating people, and I think that comes across in this uh, in this conversation. I, I will say, like this is, I think this is like the first interview I did for this series, and it was like quite a while ago, and so you can really hear me wrestling through some of the questions we've already covered in this series thus far, and also I feel a little embarrassed because. I just talk a lot in this conversation, like a lot, a lot. And a part of that is because I just really like Tori and we're friends. And so it's more of a conversation with two friends. Um, I wish I had let her talk more and I talked less. So I'm just going to be honest about that. So I'll say this is the first interview I did and I just really like Tori and we're friends. And so a lot of it's just more of a conversation than an interview, which I also have a theory on this. Okay, what? Uh, because I recently put out an episode with June Park okay. um, that I recorded a long time ago. And I think it was like June and we were like, we haven't talked to anyone yes. in like months. And now we get a chance to like talk with someone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think so, there's some like pandemic effect there. Right. But I'm just very aware I talk too much in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and like a lot of the interviews I did in the beginning, it's just... I'm like, wow, is this just a personal counseling session for me, Danielle Mayfield? Um, so <laughs> thanks, Tori. <laughs> so she actually really helped me out in this episode. And I think it's just a it's just really actually encouraging where she ends up. And I think maybe going into this, I thought it was gonna be more of just like a, you know, burn it all down, but it's it's more nuanced and actually more difficult than that. And so I'm just so grateful. Obviously, I support her on Patreon. I love what she's doing with White Homework. She's she tackles really hard things, um, but she's just she's obviously brilliant, and so she does it in really interesting ways. She's always been a great Twitter follower. Um, 
I think the reason I started following her on Twitter is because uh, after Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, she changed her Twitter bio to say, you know, I stopped being an evangelical Christian the day they lynched Mike Brown. And that really stood out to me. Um, So, yeah, she's amazing. And fast forward my bits? I don't know. What I really like is talking about, I think it is a big question right now. How do you talk to your kids about racism? Or or like problematic books. Like I mentioned the J.K. Rowling thing. Right, yeah. And um, I've... I think I've talked about this before, but um, the the book "Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria" by Beverly Daniel Tatum. She talks about like in media, like constantly having conversations with kids um, about why things are problematic. And you guys get into like where's that line of like this is too much work. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we just had an instance the other day. We were watching a Christmas story. Yeah, just the tail end of it because, you know, it's like on TV all the time. Right. And so there's this last scene where they go to the Chinese restaurant and the whole like joke is that these like these Chinese people are trying to sing Christmas songs, but they can't pronounce the words right. And our daughter, who's 10, just like laughed so hard uh, because it is funny. And then we in that moment, we're like talking about like, what is it like? try to learn another language yeah don't say we you just very calmly turned to her and was like yeah think about it ramona like what if you moved to china and you had to learn their traditional songs and sing them for other people like do you think you would get it right perfectly right and then we talked about how like this scene makes it look like chinese people are stupid yeah because they can't say things right but really they're struggling with a second language and how is like what are ways that stories or media try to portray people from other places as stupid it was so perfect and and i just thought i i felt a little paralyzed in that moment like like i didn't like you know what i mean like i know it's bad and she's laughing and i don't want to like make her feel bad because she's 10 but i'm like i don't really remember this part but i grew up watching you know like i get over paralyzed by all these things so it was really cool to just see you just really quickly turn in and make it really applicable for her and she's like oh yeah i probably can't sing traditional songs in Chinese mm-hmm. and this is making them look stupid for a joke. Um, so yeah, just well done, Crispin. Well, I thought I was like, Oh wow. My I, husband's so amazing. Well, I think yeah. that's like, I mean, that's, I think what I picked learned from this interview even. And yeah. And from this book. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, why are all the black kids sitting together in a cafeteria? Mm-hmm. Right. And so talks, talks about interrupting. So we'll put that in the show notes. That's a great next resource. And um, Tori will have lots more resources on her white homework patron. So enjoy this gab fest with me and Tori. Okay, I'm so excited today to talk to Tori Douglas because, well, there's multiple reasons. One is because I love Tori and I actually know her in real life and we both live in Portland and we've had coffee together and she's an incredible Twitter follow, like a social media follow and I, I, I don't know. I've just been able to see your presence grow online and everything in your life. So it's so cool to have you here. But I have to say, Tori, you're also like the first person I've interviewed that has listened to the Prophetic Imagination Station. <laughs> I, I love listen it to so our podcast. Much. I love it 
so much. You have no idea. I mean, you so do this- know because I text you after every episode. I know. You do. I'm like, you're an avid fan. Like, if we had badges, you would have one. And what I think is so funny is trying to, like, interview other people or experts or authors or people I admire and be like, so I have this podcast and we talk about this weird radio show. And most people are just like, what? And uh, I don't need to do that with you. So, yeah. No, no. Like, cause like, so great. my best friends and I listen and then we'll like text each other. Cause we all were like homeschooled, like all the way through, like grew up deep in evangelical culture, subculture. Right. And so, yeah, we're, we always, t- we talk about like all the episodes. <laughs> We're just like, do you remember this? Like, you know, in this present darkness, do you remember like all this stuff? Cause we all read those books, right. Yeah. When we were like yeah. 12 or whatever. Um, so appropriate for a 12 year old. <laughs> It's extremely appropriate, yes, for, right. for a 12-year-old. Totally. Safe. Safe for the whole family. That's my favorite Christian radio tagline. Um, oh, so, Corey, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners if they don't know who you are, which would be a shame. They probably yeah. already do. But tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yes, as I said, grew up hardcore evangelical. Like, evangelicals were too liberal for my parents. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I know the type <laughs> like you people sending your kids to public school and letting them watch PG movies. That's too far. So yeah, I grew up in Portland, born and raised, um, lived in the Pacific Northwest my entire life. Like I said, I was homeschooled K through 12. Um, there was, it was not, it was, it wasn't a conversation. It was a decision that was made before I was born. Um, <clears throat> And yeah, so, uh, went to Bible college in Seattle, um, which didn't really, didn't really help me that much in life (laughs) as it turns out. (laughs) Don't tell anyone. Um, although to be fair, like Bible college is very different from seminary. I just want to throw that out there. That's true. Um, so yeah, I was like very, I was evangelical until I was probably 30 years old. Yeah. So like, so it was, it was my decision, right? For a long, long time. It was my, it was my choice. Um, and I kind of stayed in that, that area because it was what was comfortable for me. It was where I knew people. It was my entire community. So yeah. And there's reasons why people stay. Now, would you consider yourself an ex-evangelical yeah, at this point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I yeah, it's because it's such a huge part of my identity, mm-hmm. right? Like, I'll be 60. But if I don't come back to evangelicalism, like, I'll be 60 by the time it's like half, only half of my life. So. Oh, that's a really fascinating way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's one of the reasons I love uh, following you on social media is because you understand the language and you understand the background mm-hmm. of, I would say, in particular, white evangelical culture, right? Yeah. And so you're able to critique it from a place of understanding it fully. And I think that's just really necessary and needed today. You also get all the weird inside jokes of our culture. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Yeah. My first concert was Carmen, obviously. Like, yes. Okay. I have a theory why it is like so many people's first concert. You want to know why? Because totally. no. they were free. Yeah, they were. And so we were like, all poor. So people could just like bring their 16 kids. Yeah. And like it was a great way to spend an evening. And he always asked for money, but like we didn't give it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah like, totally. We were there for the show. 
and what a show he's a showman if nothing else mm-hmm. right you can say a lot oh, of bad absolutely. about Herman, but you can't say absolutely he wasn't giving it 100 percent. you know oh, at all times. no he was no he was all the way in all yeah, the way all- in. there was no he was not <laughs> half-assing this at all like he was committed he was committed to the bit like i don't even think it's a bit i think he's a true believer i don't think he is but that's you okay I think we have to talk likes... about this off. Yeah, uh-huh. when we're done recording, we have to talk about. <laughs> I have so many conspiracy theories about Carmen. Oh, we... <laughs> yes, you're correct. We cannot get into this right now. No, we um, can't. It's not what we were talking so... about. <laughs> so, Tori, we are doing this whole series on the Chronicles of Narnia, and even before we started recording, we were talking about this a little bit, and you were. Like, I don't think any of your listeners will not know what the Chronicles of Narnia is because it was all pervasive in Uh evangelical American, like, childhood required reading lists. Am I wrong here? What do you think? No, absolutely. Yeah, it was on our, you know, we did, um, we did Christian Liberty Academy for high school, which was primarily, primarily used Rebecca books, right? And, but we were given, like, a reading list of, you know, we had to write X number of book reports every year um, or every quarter or whatever. Um, and yeah, it was like, it was definitely like C.S. Lewis is on like all the lists every single time. Yeah. Yeah. And you, Space Trilogy more in high school, right? But Lewis was which, on every, every list. There's so much. I mean, he was very prolific too, right? Very prolific. True. But True. so, so did you read the books when you were a kid? Like the mm-hmm. Chronicles of Narnia books? Yeah. And what do yeah, you remember mom, about them? Like, how did you feel about them as a kid? I mean, I felt like they were very enjoyable. I, I like, yeah, I loved them. I really did. I loved them. And, um, like, my invisible friend was Reepa Cheep. No. So, yes. Yep. So, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was in it too. I, I thought it was, you know, I thought it was really fun and I thought that the stories were just really fascinating and kind of just kept you engaged yeah um and even like my like neither of my kids love to read chapter books like for bedtime but they both you know when I started reading the magician's nephew they both just like sat there quietly which is never happens so it's very captivating just I guess the way that he has written it and and kind of like I don't, I guess in a way it's kind of timeless. Like it doesn't feel that way to me now reading it as an adult mm-hmm. and a black woman. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. feel very timeless now, but like, oh yeah. You know, in, in, in white evangelical culture, like absolutely. Ooh, that's a great starting point to sort of dig into these books. So the idea of timelessness, I think is coming from, I, I, in my mind, there's two things and you can totally correct me and push back at me, whatever you want to do. I think C.S. Lewis wrote books for himself that kids ended up liking. So he wasn't mm. using the normal yeah. way a person would write to children, right? But he just used children as his protagonists. Mm-hmm. Um and so even when I was a kid, you know, you're just you just read a lot of drivel, right? And you read a lot of things that especially if you grow up a Christian, right? They're just trying to teach you a flat out moral to obey your parents about, or it's just ridiculous. Like my daughter was really into these books about fairies for a while. I don't know if you've ever seen them at the library. There's like 100 million of them. There's like all these different kinds of fairies Mm -hmm. and there's a book about each Uh one, but the plots are so formulaic that by the time she was five, she was like, these are so boring. And I'm like, yes, that's how a lot of kids books are. So I think C.S. Lewis transcends that a bit. And so even as a kid, if you're used to being talked down to, you're like, oh, oh, this person 
is not talking down to me. Plus, as an American, I think the little British ways of describing people are kind of interesting. That stood out to me. But I think you're right. I would have said there's a timeless quality about it when in reality, just so much of like fantasy literature comes out of this one place, which is basically Britain, right? And Oxford educated (laughs) white dudes. And so that has become what timeless literature is when of course it's not, it's, it's centered in a place. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, you had this experience that I think a lot of us have had, but you're able to uh, articulate it maybe in ways that I hadn't really heard. So some of us grew up reading these books. Now we have kids and now we're starting to read the books we grew up with to our kids. And sometimes we have this experience of being like, oh my gosh, there are things in here I did not remember. There are things in here I am not comfortable with. Yeah. What do I do now? What What do I do yeah. now? Because I loved this thing. You know, this says I've written about this publicly. This happened with me and Little House on the Prairie and yeah. trying to read it to my daughter and just being like, oh. okay we have to stop a lot and talk about things and then eventually we just stopped reading it because yeah Mm -hmm. you know it wasn't quite Mm -hmm. worth it to have all those conversations over and over again you know Mm -hmm. so what happened when you started reading the magician's nephew also can i ask a question yeah you started with the magician's nephew is that correct i did i did because I, i don't know why but like my mom kind of gave us the option. I remember as kids, she was like, okay, so they were written in this order, but we can also read them, like, we can read the story chronologically. And so, which would you like to do? I think we probably did it once each way. Okay. If I recall correctly. But yeah, so that's where I started with my kids. Yeah, so, so there's yeah. so much drama about this if you're, like, in the C.S. Lewis forums, which I <laughs> For don't sure. exactly advocate you going there but yeah so this is actually the sixth book that c.s lewis wrote but it is chronologically the first so so if you could i mean i'm sure people don't exactly remember do you want to sum up what the book is really quick sure yeah absolutely so um essentially um the the main little protagonist diggory and polly um are getting into shenanigans it's a summer, rainy summer in London, which I mean, I guess probably most summers in London are rainy, but, (laughs) and they're just trying to come up with something to do. And, um, they stumble into Diggory's uncle's study and he is trying to do magic (laughs) in his office. (laughs) And, uh, he basically tricks them into like leaving earth and going into another world. So Mm. they wind up in, um, the wood between the worlds right and they're very confused um and essentially they had they go to different they che- they go to different places like they kind of were kind of trying to just like check check out some of the different places once they realize like how to how to work the magic rings that they have and then um they accidentally end up bringing a witch from one world charn is that how you pronounce it charn or karn I don't know. I don't know, actually. Let's say charm. Mm. Okay. And so they bring a witch on accident back to our world, uh, back to London, who obviously kind of wreaks havoc all over the city and is very confused that, like, all the people in London are not just her subjects automatically because she said so. So they're now faced with this conundrum of trying to get the witch back to her own world. Um, and 
So they grab their magic rings and they head back to the wood and end up jumping into the wrong pool, essentially, and wind up in nowhere. <laughs> and so as they're, you know, as they're standing there, very confused, trying to figure out what to do because it's completely dark, can't see anything, um, they start hearing this song. And then, like, they start seeing a little bit of light. And essentially, it's like this very mythical creation story that they get to stand there and watch, right? And then eventually, they see Aslan and um, end up having a conversation with him. He tells them to, like, go on this little journey because Diggory's mom is ill and he wants to help her recover, which they don't really unpack that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of a side story. Or she's, like, she's, like, she's not a character. She's just, like, part of, like, the moral narrative, mm-hmm. right? Of, like, what would you do to save your family? Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, and then it's it's a little bit of a happily ever after, right? Except for the witch stays in narnia um and aslan's like kind of going like oh, one of the lines i thought was so funny was he's like this world is only seven hours old and already there's evil <laughs> he's like, there's evil in the land like you were such a drama queen aslan calm down <laughs> <laughs> and he's like i just i feel like he's so dramatic like the character because he's the other thing is he's like He's like, I'll have to deal with this evil someday, but I'll make sure that I take the brunt of it. Oh, okay. Foreshadowing. I know. So he's like, hundreds of years from now, this will come back to bite me in the ass. (laughs) So wait, Jadis is the white witch. Yeah. Witch. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know me. I'm coming at this from like I remember bits and pieces as a kid, and I think it's important to like think about what you remember and what you don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a kid, I thought the magician's nephew was boring. Mm, Interesting. Very boring. What do you remember? How you felt about this book when you were a kid? I was so intrigued. Like I just, I loved even more than Narnia. I think I loved the idea of the wood. Oh, because the, he, the way the he just des- yeah. the way that he describes it is just so like calm and peaceful and beautiful and like at least that's how Diggory and Polly experience it, right? Yeah. And you always see yourself as the protagonist. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Janus has a very different experience in the wood. Like it's very oppressive and like crushing to her. Mm. Um, which I mean, I just like there's so much sexism and classism in this book. It's it's not like I, I i did i quite i gave up reading because i was like <laughs> he's so he's just like constantly talking when they go when they originally diggory and polly originally go to the first world charn he just goes on and on about like these beautiful tall white races and their beautiful long white fingers like, oh my god and it's so weird it's like there's no one else here like you don't have to say that they're white but yeah. he just, for some reason, like he feels the need to say this over and over and over. And I, I, you know, I skipped it initially. I was like, we don't, we just don't have to use that word. Cause it, yeah, I don't think it matters. Right. Like it wouldn't have made any difference if, if Jadis had been another race. Yeah. I mean, except for then it would have been probably pretty racist, but <laughs> cause she's, she's the bad guy. Um, but yeah, I was I was really like I was really bothered by that. And then like they get back to London and then there's all this classism, right? Because Diggory and Polly are kind of like they have maids. Yeah. Right? And they live in these large homes. Yeah. Um and 
you know, there there are people like taking care of their parents' errands and stuff. So yeah, it's very strange. And Just isn't there a character the in the book who's supposed to be a sort of like lower class, like Frank, the cabbie driver, mm-hmm. the horse drawn carriage driver, and he mm-hmm. has a different accent and all that stuff. And yeah, yeah, she starts to lose when he gets to Narnia and starts becoming like his true self. And he becomes the king eventually, which uh-huh. is so weird. It's a very I weird. I was like, I literally wrote a note. I was like, why? Why does the story require like a monarchy? Ooh. I don't understand. Like why? because it's mostly it's mostly animals right yeah like there were there were like there were centaurs and fawns and other like other little sprite type creatures yeah but i was like why 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 do we have to have a king and queen like this is odd well i mean let's just let's just dive in okay tori because <laughs> i think there's some fascinating things to unpack here in regards to colonialism right this idea that mm-hmm. british people of upper class um sh- you know can travel to new worlds and be benevolent monarchs right and uh yeah. be the ones to help restore order help restore the balance um all that stuff and so i think that's a theme we see in narnia which is you know that's gotta be that has to be a part of c.s lewis's world view and Mm -hmm. one that um as much as i'd like to be on my high horse and be like oh what a weird colonialist mindset it's like (laughs) well white evangelicals just swallowed that hook line and sinker like you know what i mean especially in regards to the united states and who should be in charge politically of the united states Mm -hmm. from day one it is obviously Mm -hmm. the god-ordained white protestants right from Mm -hmm. england and i think that's still why there is a lot of fascination in the united states with c.s lewis and his writings because we already have this cultural tie to seeing ourselves as you know the center of the story Mm -hmm. benevolent monarchs all that jazz i think what's fascinating is i'm not sure that the chronicles of narnia or c.s lewis in general is as huge a deal in england as it is in america have you got that sense yeah 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 and i i think it's just like i want to keep unpacking why are these stories continually so important um and you know there's there's some good and some bad you already mentioned the fact that he really is able to create these magical worlds like the wood between Mm -hmm. the worlds is a really unique concept and it actually is really different from the christian literalism of the seven day genesis story mm-hmm. and so maybe even you as a child were experiencing some wonder right i get to mm-hmm. not just be forced into this narrative i've heard a million times so that's how i approached the magician's nephew i just was like "Ugh, this sounds like the book of genesis one more time which i've heard a million times yeah and i yeah. wasn't able to engage in the magic of it because it's not it's there's some really weird differences and some mm-hmm. play and some I mean, the whole thing about C.S. Lewis, he was really annoyed when people would call it an allegory. He's like, no, this is like, I, I think there's other realms and other realities out there. Mm-hmm. I think the world is bizarre. Yeah. I think we can't explain it all. There might truly be a Narnia out there. You know, it's just like right. us literalists, biblical literalists yeah. would be like, what are you saying? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he truly was like, who the hell knows? There's yeah. probably lots of weird stuff going on in other realms. And that is just so not a part of my upbringing or background yeah i mean not to like totally derail but i feel like the great divorce is kind of another good example like evangelicals love that even though theologically it doesn't align at all i mean there's so much of his theology that does not align (laughs) it's really interesting how they like pull yeah how they like pulled him into their own kind of 
worldview and narrative, yeah. right? Yeah. And and they view him through that lens. Yeah, and I think this is something we see. Obviously, this can happen in a lot of different subcultures and how we relate to really famous or prolific people. But I am really interested in, since I come from a background specifically of white evangelicalism, of saying, how do we look at heroes? How do we treat them? What does that say about us? And how do we move forward if we want to have a more nuanced understanding, right? So an academic would say, yes, C.S. Lewis deserves to be looked at in his fullness and his humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, And you really need to grapple with some of these things. So you mentioned like the way C.S. Lewis is writing about race when it comes to Jadis and just really like, yeah, she's an evil queen, but she's also extremely smart, right? Like her home world has been successfully taken over, you know, although Mm -hmm. didn't she, she did end up killing everybody, right? Like in one of the worlds, she said a magic word that destroyed people. Yeah. So it's it's a little complicated, but especially like contrasting that with the book, um, The Horse and His Boy, right? When it talks about these Eastern people who are probably Muslim um, being very, you know, dark skinned and sort of conniving and they only speak in riddles and parables. It just, (laughs) and they're, you know, they steal all this stuff. Like that's pretty, I mean, C.S. Lewis is not great on talking about race. So we, we, that is just a known fact. Okay. His yeah. Orientalism is just a known fact. And so I think you're right to say as an adult reading about that, you're like, okay, this is not great. And this is actually not something I would like to pass down to my children, right? His views on race and how they come out in his kids' books. So you mentioned you stopped reading the books to your kids. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that decision? Um, I think a lot of it was just the idea of how much time I wasn't sure, I guess. Okay. So I wasn't sure because it had been at this point decades since I'd read the books, right. Since I'd read Narnia. Um, and so I was like, "Mm, I don't know if this is going to be worth my time necessarily to like, try to either skip over parts that I just didn't want my, I don't want my kids internalizing white supremacy. And I try to actively fight against that. And so I'm not just going to read about these beautiful white races that Jadis is a part of <laughs> like, and like my kids already in like all the characters that they see, all, all the protagonists that they see are like either animals or white kids. Right. Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. it's like, it's very, we have a very whitewashed, culture and storytelling and i just didn't need that i'm like i didn't i don't feel like my kids need this right um but it is hard because yeah fantasy seems to really be have these like deep sort of english roots in a lot of ways and you know even though clearly like there have been there have been black and indigenous people in the uk for centuries and i'm sure i'm sure indian people as well like why are you acting like nobody else exists except for you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I probably will come back to it. I mean, my my oldest is very, we're having a lot of discussions about, about Palestine and Kashmir right now. Um, places that have these really long histories um, of conflict because of, of colonialism, because of like actions taken by like the west right and i'm trying to talk about you know i things the ways that these kind these kinds of nuanced conflicts play out um you know because obviously my child is like well 
let's just let's just make cashmere its own country like this seems very this seems very easy like let's just solve this um and it's like well buddy it's not it's not that easy taiwan is another example of he's like taiwan belongs to china i'm like well taiwanese people don't think that so let's talk about this Mm -hmm. um so for me like just kind of the cultural like white supremacy that just was in the books it's like i don't really know if i want to get into this yet because i'm not having these conversations yet but now that we're like more in that i think that he especially my oldest is more able to wrestle with these concepts right and constructs of of you know we have conversations about whiteness and we have conversations about white supremacy and slavery and jim crow and obviously like um palestine and um so you know last year when i had started reading the books i was like oh like you know they'll probably i was shocked at like how engaged they were but i didn't to me it's just so important like as a black woman living in portland it's really important to not inadvertently reinforce the classism right and and the racism and the sexism that is kind of inherent in these stories um and so yeah i did i did stop reading the books and i think that we will eventually go back and read them but yeah with more conversation around just the kind of assumptions that are made in the in the stories yeah and the thing that i that came to my mind as you're talking is like it's just so much work for you right it's going to be a lot of work to engage with these books in the ways that you're trying to, you said, I'm trying to be really aware of white supremacy and how it impacts our world, our stories and my kids. Right. And you have to do that work because you are a black woman, uh, Mm -hmm. extreme minority in Portland. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is on purpose baked into our, uh, state constitution. So it's just a lot of work for you. I feel like I, I am just now entering that world where I need to put that same level of work into being aware of white supremacy and patriarchal norms, right? Um, all Mm -hmm. these, all these things that are pretty tied up together. Um, and it does take the fun out of it just to be perfectly honest, which is why we stopped, right? That's why I stopped reading little house on the prairie to my daughter. Cause I'm like, okay, it's not really fun to like have to stop every time and be like, so when Ma is afraid of the Indians, like, and we don't even get to see their perspective, what it's like to get their land taken, you know, and for me reading Little House on the Prairie, this is a huge part of our homeschool curriculum, much more than C.S. Lewis Mm -hmm. was, was Laura Ingalls Wilder, um, was like the ability to just imagine myself living and like, what would I eat and what would it be like? And what are the fields like? And, and the imaginative element is supposed to be really important and yet that gets interrupted when we have to interrupt white supremacy right and so i think growing up evangelical c.s lewis's books were safe and they like um they really paralleled some biblical stories that our parents wanted us to internalize Um, But a byproduct is that it allowed us to engage imaginatively in these fantasy worlds, you know, and that Mm -hmm. would have some positive benefits. Now, looking through an anti-racist lens, like, how do we how do we deal with that? How do we deal with these books that both can spark imagination and that we also have to actively interrupt? Like all this stuff. And how how do we kind of continue to encourage our kids to engage in like fantasy Mm -hmm. thinking because the more I've actually studied C.S. Lewis you know I was really ready to just 
rip him a new one and just say like, these books are trash. Don't read them. Cancel him. Not really, but you know what I mean? Just like, and I think there's valid reasons. If anybody wants to do that, I say, do it. Yeah. At the same time, the more I look into him and really, really look at his context, he was obsessed with this idea of joy. This is way before he became a Christian. Like when you find things in the world that just give you the sense of like, awe or like the world is bigger than me. And like, he found that in really, really weird literature for a very long time. And up until the point of his death. And I'm like, that's not a bad thing to want to, to cultivate in yourself and in your kids. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awe and joy and wonder. These are, I would say almost universal things we want to be able to experience in the world. Now, how do we do that and interrupt white supremacy? Tori, how do we do it? Um, That's a big well, question. I think, it, I think it requires a lot of conversations um, and a lot of honesty and kind of, you know, I've had to, with my kids, I really do. I try to train them to see injustice, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think it is, I think it's okay, you know, if if a child wants to enjoy C.S. Lewis, like, I, I don't think that that is inherently problematic. If they are also being taught the ways that colonialism has played out and how that is going to influence writers, right. From, from, you know, any, anywhere that we would be considered like ideologically the West. Yeah. And so, you know, as, as I said, like with my oldest, I'm able to have conversations where it's like, you know, I'll stop and I'll point out like, what does that sign say? Like, you know, there's a lot of Black Lives Matter signs in our in our neighborhood right now. Um, but when we go on our evening walks, we'll just talk about like the signs we see. So there's one one corner kind of near a house where someone has like spray painted stolen land. And so I, when we walk past it, I ask, you know, I ask my oldest, I'm like, what does that say? What does that mean? What is that talking about? And we have these kinds of conversations and I, you know, I do it over and over because i know that like one conversation is not enough right i mean just just like with sex and sexuality like you don't have one conversation and then it's like mm-hmm. okay we're done mm-hmm. we've mm-hmm. covered all, all the bases it's like this ongoing intellectual development right yeah um that eventually leads to hopefully healthy practices that don't cause more harm that don't repeat harmful patterns right and so i think that absolutely like these books can be enjoyed um but i do think that it is it is really important to be aware of the context in which they were written and and the fact that um you know c.s lewis was not writing through an anti-racist lens he was not writing through an anti-colonial lens you know um who's not writing through like a feminist lens at all. And like, absolutely like enjoy, but also I think it's really it, more, more than like what our kids read is giving them the tools to be able to assess and like power dynamics, right. The power mm-hmm. structures and, mm-hmm. and the language, the way that like language can be used to humanize or to other, right. To mm-hmm. dehumanize people. Um, and like, I think that that has to be built in because there just isn't there, there isn't a lot of fantasy that is quote unquote woke. Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's way more now than there has ever been, but yeah. you know, anything that's considered a classic, like, 
Yeah. It's very much like a white. <laughs> it's a it's a large, beautiful white <laughs> industry. Yeah. To borrow from to borrow from Lewis's language descriptions. Yeah, I think I mean, I'm just so glad you're you're bringing this up because I think there's two things happening here. One is I totally agree with you is if we can build in these normal supports of looking for injustice, you know, like looking to have our imagination shaped, not just by one kind of story, that's going to go a long way. Um, but as you're teaching your own kids, this I've had this experience, right? I'm, I'm trying to do this with my own kids. I realized like, I didn't really get that growing up. So I have to actually teach myself and it is hard. It's really hard. And even as we told people, we're going to be talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, the the most common response we've gotten is, oh my gosh, don't ruin it for me. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. I'm so scared you're going to ruin it for me, which is interesting. I think that's coming out of a place of scarcity or almost like binary mm -hmm. thinking, right? Either yeah. it's perfect or it's horrible. Well, mm -hmm. but most things are going to be somewhere in between. Yeah. And it is really yeah. up to you to kind of decide, is this worth it for me to engage? Like to the positives, mm -hmm. away the negatives. And can I continue to have the strength to have these conversations that needed to be had? Yeah, um, absolutely. And it, I think fantasy writing is so interesting because people get so attached, right? Like yes. we see this happening with J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter books right now. Like mm -hmm. how hurtful it is to recognize the person who wrote these books that you were able to really experience joy. I would say yes. a lot of people have found joy in reading Harry yes. Potter and realize, yeah. oh my gosh, this author has some views that like not only are problematic, but like invalidate me as a person, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a mm -hmm. pretty big deal. And so it's yeah. not just the Christian world that has to sort of decide what do we do with this? I think it's everybody because you're right. There's, there's not a lot out there, although that's changing, but it some of us get awesome. so emotionally invested in books and we're like, wait a minute, not everything is great about this. Yeah. And I think that it's, I think that it's good, like having these books that we love, honestly, I think that's a great place to learn to read from a decolonial lens, mm. right? Because it's a place where you're already comfortable. So even though like, again, like I absolutely recognize like the joy and beauty in, in the magician's nephew. Um, although like the sort the creation the chapter that was like the creation story I was like this is meh yes <laughs> but, right but the rest of it yeah yes, so boring. <laughs> oh my but the rest of it I was like oh this is like really fascinating but yeah mm -hmm. just viewing it through, you know I'm like I'm asking myself very different questions I didn't know what to ask as a kid yeah. of like why do we need hierarchy why do we need power structures why do we need world building mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um and and this idea that is kind of entrenched in evangelicalism of we we're going to make a new world so this one doesn't matter mm -hmm. we're, we're we're not invested in fixing this we're not oh, invested in harm reduction yes. right we're not invested in our communities because a new world is coming yeah. and we don't have to deal with this one um so yeah i think that there is there's absolutely space for C.S. Lewis, um, I think, especially when when you if you you know if if you're with kids, right, with his with his kids books, like I think it's a, it is actually a really meaningful way to kind of have those conversations that sort of stick with your it kind of sticks to your bones a little bit, like it, just the way that he writes, it just kind of resonates in you for decades, yeah, right. And I mean, I think that that's, I'm still like, 
you know, talking about the, the, the space trilogy, like I still, like, I still feel like what I felt when I first was reading those books, Mm. right? Like I still can go back to that emotional place now. Yeah. I don't know how long it's been since I read any of that, like, yeah. but I still like feel those feelings and those experiences. And even though I view it through a very different lens now, like at the same time, I understand like this is fiction. It is okay to enjoy things that are not, um, that don't reflect a perfect world because we don't have a perfect world. We just have to be able to acknowledge that our fantasy is also imperfect. Yeah. I can't. Okay. I'm like loving this idea that books we loved in childhood are great actually training tool to start to view our the things we love through this lens of decolonization. And so thanks mm-hmm. for that. I think that's actually really going to be helpful to me because I think like a lot of white people, I can sort of like approach it with shame, right? Oh my gosh, I yes. used to love this. I must be a terrible person. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And there's, there's certain books like there's this book that I was obsessed with that I was a kid is the little princess. I don't know if you've ever read that book. Um, but my daughter started rereading it and there's so much colonialistic mm-hmm. horribleness specifically around the nation of India that happens oh. that I was just like, I wanted to barf because I was just so obsessed with that book. I cannot even, and again, with this series, I'm going to have to, um, approach the horse and his boy at some point and reread it, which right. I haven't yet because I'm really, yeah. I'm really terrified because that was my favorite book. Yeah, And it's widely considered to be like the worst book as far as racism in in the mm-hmm. whole and all of his mm-hmm. writing basically so i'm like i'm gonna have to tackle that but can i view it as an opportunity for building these skills in me that i didn't really grow up with even this idea of oh looking at power dynamics in literature or yeah. scripture hello right yeah. we never absolutely. did that never absolutely and i it have so, to it, build it, these skills it adds so much it adds so much depth yeah right like at least a scripture, like it had so much depth to the story when you're, when you view it through the lens of when you're not when you're no longer viewing it through the lens of power acquisition. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but yeah, I think that there is, right, there's like the, it's either, I feel like there's like the ditch on one side is shame and yeah. guilt and the ditch on the other side is like, no, that's not true. Like, I'm just going to reject this out of hand. Like, I'm not even going to deal with it. And I think that there is definitely a way to wrestle with these yeah. things without completely throwing them out. Um, because there is, there is beauty and joy in these works of art. Yeah. Right. And I, art does not have to be perfect or to reflect a perfect world to have value. We just have to be able to view it through a lens of, of harm reduction. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. engage with it in in that way as opposed to just accepting it as it is. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And so uh, this is like a kind of a random question, but I want to ask you. I'm I want to say what's the difference between like The Magician's Nephew and an episode of Adventures in Odyssey? Hmm. I mean, I think that like with Odyssey, it's a lot, it's just, it's so much more blatant, right? It's like in your face, this is the moral, this is the lesson, this is what we're supposed to be learning. Um, Even though they do try to be kind of coded with like their kind of LGBTQ like parade or whatever, (laughs) they were like, whatever, whatever coded term that they used for it, um, that they were able to, that, you know, they were, that, that wit or whoever was able to kind of hijack and turn into like the family fun festival or whatever. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. um so i think that yeah that um it's very much like face value 
with Odyssey. Um, and I think, I think with Lewis, you really have to kind of sit with it a little bit more. Um, and, and engage it on more of, I'm like, I almost want to say like a spiritual level, right? That it's not just an intellectual exercise, you know, yeah. but there's yeah. also like an emotional component to it. Um, whereas, you know, Adventures and Odyssey is very much like right and wrong, good and bad. Like, this is what we do because we're yeah. good people. Yeah. Um, and I think too that, um, I think authorial intent is not everything, but it should be yeah. considered. And so, mm-hmm. you know, focus on the family basically is a political activist organization at this point, mm-hmm. putting forth, um, you know, propaganda to, to yeah. convince people. And I, the more I've studied C.S. Lewis, the more I've realized like he was obsessed with this idea of magic um, mm-hmm. and, and was sort of working out some of his own stuff and his newfound return to Christianity in these books, right. Using yeah. magic as a way to kind of reconcile his intellectualism um, mm-hmm. with his newfound faith. And I think the yeah. magic is what transcends some of this uh, problematic stuff, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. It doesn't negate yeah. it and it doesn't erase it. Um, but there's Absolutely. a reason why I'm much more willing to say, I'll put in the work, you know, to read Chronicles of Narnia with my kids when uh, Adventures in Odyssey, I'm just like, nope. <laughs> that's not worth it to me you know well, it's right it's like what what can what can be redeemed here what sparks joy right to borrow the phrase like what what is going to have like a long-term meaningful impact um on my kids right yeah. and and their childhoods and and i i think that there is like there's absolutely like a place for stories that don't like line up with your ideology yeah. or with your worldview um or with your perspective um i think as long as we are empowering our kids to see to see power dynamics and power disparities and to see like the ways that we take the dehumanization of other people for granted mm. or we just don't see it um I think that there's still a lot, like if we give our kids those skill sets, like those tools, they can engage with this content, um, in a way that's still very meaningful. Whereas I don't know with adventures and Odyssey, like, I'm not sure that that's really going to help. Oh right? yeah. It's, there's not much to redeem there. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh i'm just like feeling really hopeful after talking to you. Just thinking like, <laughs> what do I want for myself and my kids? I want them to not dehumanize people. I want them to yeah. be able to spot instantly when there's funky Uh power dynamics at play and abuse being legitimized, all this stuff. So that is actually really hopeful because sometimes, you know, people from a dominant culture background, like myself, we could just be like, do we have to nitpick everything? It's like, well, maybe, (laughs) (laughs) maybe we do, but there's a reason why. And it's because we actually want to see a world where people are treated with human rights. Ah! Yeah. What a what a weird idea, you know? <laughs> it's such a it's such a wild concept. We want people to be treated well. Who you know, like who would have thought? Like, it who came sh- up with this idea? I, oh my gosh! <laughs> so I actually feel really encouraged. I mean, this is not surprising to me. This is sort of what you do now for your work. You have a website and you have a Patreon community. You have a a podcast and it's called White Homework. And so mm-hmm. you really are invested in. Um, empowering people to do the work, I think, to start to become, I don't know if I want to say 
anti-racist because maybe that's patting all of ourselves on the back. But just to start to ask questions, right, would be the yes, first thing and to listen absolutely. and do all that. Absolutely. So tell the listeners a little bit about where they can find you and how they can access more of your wisdom. Mm, yeah. Um, okay. So um, I am on Twitter and Instagram at White Homework. Super easy. Um, my personal Instagram or personal Twitter page is at Tori Glass. Um, and yeah, my, my Patreon community, um, I am trying to put my, trying to put my money where my mouth is. So I'm using my Patreon community and the support that I get there to pay the rent for a family of color for a year. Um, so all of that is super easy. It's at whitehomework.com. Um, and yeah, I'm very easy to get a hold of if you have internet access. So Yeah. 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 And I love that. I mean, even just this whole pay the rent club, it's like, we can find joy right in this, in yes. this work and we can yeah. um, pursue joy. And yeah, I think that's one thing I want to, I want to continue thinking about and holding close to me is in my own childhood, in my current reality, in my kids, like I, I want to continue to, to look for joy and, and see how it shows up in my life. And um, yeah. it's wild, Tori, isn't it? Trying to think about our childhood and how we were raised uh-huh. and um, think through things and, and be like, there's, there's some things I, I kind of, I want to hold on to. Um, yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's very natural. That's very normal. I think that, um, right. When you give your kids the skill set to be able to examine these things, um, they can enjoy both. They can enjoy both the beauty and not be unintentionally absorbing. Yeah. Like these hierarchies, power dynamics, whatever, like these not internalizing the, the ways that, harm is caused by things that seem very natural to us in our context. So yeah, I think that, I think that absolutely these stories can be redeemed and like can still bring joy to people, especially kids. But sometimes I think we don't even understand, uh, what is off about these stories until we hear from other people. Um, so thank you yeah. for sharing like what it was like to read the book, the things that stood out to you, because I'm not sure all yeah. of us would have had that same thought. So thanks for sharing with us. Thanks for chatting with me. Okay. I'm going to ask you one more random question. Okay. What was your favorite, like evangelical artifact from growing up as a kid? Oh man, that, that is, that's tough. You could say your um, least favorite if that's easier. I'm fine with that. Hmm. Oh, I gotta think about. Were this. you a salty I mean, gal? <laughs> not. I mean, I did kind. I did kind of like. I did kind of like salty. There was there was a couple of like the yeah. little sing songy like clubhouse shows yeah. and like audio cassettes that yeah. <laughs> that we got to listen to. I love those for sure. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Oh, it might be the the Hanna Barbera. Bible stories. Oh, was that super book or is that something else? I think it was something else. Cause it was like these three characters, like these three modern characters, like, like Americans that would go back and like live the Bible stories with, <laughs> like, I don't even remember their names. Okay. Awesome. I now have to go look that up because that oh is, my gosh, yeah. I'm sort of remembering it and sort of not. 
Yes. So we will do that. We will look that up and then we will put that in the show notes, whatever that is. <laughs> whatever it's called. I don't even know. It's just like, yeah, it's just, that's, that's what it was. It was yeah. like the Hanna-Barbera Bible stories. I don't so even remember the characters, but yeah. And it was so, they're so funny, right? Because it's like, oh yeah, we're going to follow Samson around for Samson's story. There's no moral in Samson's story. What are you doing? <laughs> well, these are like horrific stories um, that are really not appropriate for kids at all. Are they? Oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. going back and like watching them, it's just like, oh, 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 okay. <laughs> this is what you were teaching us, huh? Cool. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but that was, those are probably my favorite. Okay. Yeah. That is so awesome. And Veggie Tales. You know, they kind of hold up. I'm not, I'm going to, I was, I was, I was in high school when Veggie Tales came out, but it was still, I still watched know. them. I feel like I was also older and I know mm-hmm. my kids watch it like, every Sunday so I can do my zoom church. So they hold Love up. It. Okay. Phil Vischer just came out with an interesting black lives matter yeah. post. The pro black lives matter. Blah, blah, blah. You yeah, know, in I his, heard that. In his Bob that. voice. Okay. Well, Tori, <laughs> thank you so much for chatting with us, for being on the oh podcast. Everybody so go happy. follow her on Twitter at Tori glass. She's amazing. And then at white homework. Thanks Tori. Mm-hmm. Thank you. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Find out more at propheticimaginationstation.com. Also, you can follow Danielle and Crispin on Twitter and Instagram, as well as following the Prophetic Imagination Station on Twitter at PIS underscore imagine and on Instagram at Prophetic Imagination Station. Thanks for listening.